Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts. And today, it is my pleasure to introduce Allie Bird. Since her husband's untimely death, Allie Bird has poured her heart into helping those who feel helpless during an unexpected crisis. Her extensive study of grief psychology and culture, combined with her own devastating firsthand knowledge, led her to create a roadmap for those committed to supporting the bereaved. A registered psychotherapist qualifying, coach, and speaker, Allie offers a clear path to those who have the courage to take on the vital role of being a grief ally. She is a coach and author with a BA from Carleton University and an MSc in social planning from the University of Toronto. She is a member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association, the Bereavement Ontario Network, and registered psychotherapist qualifying with the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario. Keeping her life in balance, Allie is passionate about taking long walks with her dog, creating art, and singing at the top of her lungs every time she has the chance. You can learn more about Allie at www.alliebird.com. Allie, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am very happy to have you as a guest today. Uh, Dave, I am so happy to be here as a guest today. Thank you for having me. Before we actually get into the interview, by the way, the topic of our discussion is being a grief ally, and we're going to ask questions around that particular topic. I hope you don't mind, but I am a, I am a cat person, but I love dogs. But I've had cats for about the, the last 27 years, although I don't have a cat now. But I am a cat person. I, I hope that isn't going to be a deal breaker as far as continuing with the interview. Not at all. I actually have a cat, too. She just doesn't go on long walks with me. Um, Yeah, that'd be a little bit tough. (laughs) Yeah. Unless you put a leash on her. We've tried that. Not a fan. No. I don't think any of my cats would have been anyway, but um, let's get right down to it. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you would, please share the event or events that have shaped your current life path. Yeah. So I was trained as a coach in my late 20s. And right when I was really getting my feet wet in the industry, you know, feel like I was making my mark, starting to get some clients, um, my husband, the love of my life, the person that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, died instantly completely unexpectedly in a hiking accident. And I was thrown into the world of grief without any understanding of what it was like to live with a life-changing loss. Um, And I have kind of been on that journey of, you know, 
living with grief, learning how to live with grief um, since that moment. And what has inspired me to do the work that I do now is really born from the positive I had experience that I had from the people around me. Um, or very early on in my grief, I was encouraged to go find community. I tried. I joined all sorts of groups um, with people who had lost their partners. Um, and what I discovered was that I was having a very different experience than my widowed mm -hmm. peers. They were describing being abandoned and forgotten and incredibly misunderstood. And although the people around me really couldn't quite understand what was happening to me in an intimate way, they were willing to stand next to me to not disappear and to say, like, I'm going to love you through this no matter what it looks like. Um, and from that process and that support, I really wanted to make sure that that's what other people were getting to. Um, so I wrote the book um, to, you know, give the broader community who want to provide grief support more guidance um, as to how to show up for someone who is bereaved. And then moving from coaching into being a therapist, I now support people who are kind of at the epicenter of grief and loss um, and help them, you know, recognize that grief is, is not a disease or a mental illness. It is a natural part of life. And it's something that is very human. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how I got here and, and what I do now. You know, it's interesting. And thank you for sharing that with our listeners, Allie, because when my daughter, Janine, transitioned over 20 years ago due to a, a very rare and aggressive form of cancer, I was, a, I was employed as an addictions counselor for the state of New York. I had worked with individuals from all walks of life dealing with trauma that was related to addiction, not related to addiction, mental health concerns, and my daughter's transition, I, I wasn't prepared for it. All the training in the world, all the, uh, the past therapy experience that I had didn't prepare me for dealing with such a life-altering loss. And at the age of 47, I basically had to learn to walk all over again and to quote one of, I think, Canada's favorite late sons, Neil Peart, the late great drummer for Rush, who dealt with his own catastrophic losses in the late 90s. He stated that he had to discover what type of a person he wanted to be in the type of world that he wanted to live in after his losses. And yeah. essentially, that's what I, I needed to do. And I think that's what many individuals who experience catastrophic loss need to do. Yeah. No, you, you're spot on, Dave, like particularly very intimate losses like the death of a child or the death of uh, a spouse, like those people are such significant players in the, the web of life that you have that when they, they die or they pass or, you know, they transition whatever language you want to use, like it kind of breaks all the rules that you mm -hmm. thought about the world, right? Yep. And part of the process of grief is, yeah, rebuilding a set of beliefs um, that help you live in the mm -hmm. world. Um, yeah. Yeah, we basically have to rebuild our assumptive world. Um, the, right. the foundation that we now build 
following catastrophic loss is much different than the foundation we had prior. And it has to be different in order for us to re-engage in life in a world that's permanently changed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of the the impetus for the for the work that I am doing is that like I want to live in a world where Will's legacy, Will's memory and my grief that exists alongside it, like all of it gets to live very presently in my everyday life. Like I want it in my work. I want it in my play. Like all of it. I don't want to have to shut anything, you know, behind doors to make other people feel more comfortable or to have it be culturally appropriate. Like, and so I have to do this work. Like that's, it's so close to my heart. Like to be able to live, I need to do this work. And that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, through the death or transition or passing of another person, we learn how to live again in a way that's different. But we re-engage in life with purpose and meaning, and we discover things about ourselves that we never, we would possibly never discovered if it wasn't for our willingness to work through the challenges that that catastrophic loss created for us. And I never say growth is a result of death, because if you say that to somebody, they're going to say, well, there's nothing good about anybody dying. And it's true. But we grow as a result of the challenges that we are faced after any type of loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. None of us would ever be grateful for having to do it, but it does happen. Yeah. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Nobody's ever grateful for experiencing tragedy, but it's the aftermath of how we get through it and what we learn about ourselves and what we do to help others. That is where the, the reward is. Yes. And then we also realize that the we can do that while maintaining the relationship with our loved ones and continuing that bond. So we end up carrying our grief and not only doing work in their honor, but we do work with them as well, too, because we carry them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, maintaining that relationship and that connection through everything that we do. Yeah. So please tell us about your late spouse, uh, his name, uh, what made your relationship so special? Yeah, so um, my husband's name was Will. Um, if you want to get <clears throat> uh, caught up on definitions, technically he wasn't my husband, but for the sake of how I feel in my heart and all the plans that we had for the future, I say he is my husband. Um, we had a really beautiful life together. Um, I say that when we met, he filled all the gaps that I didn't know I had. Um, and I was at a point in my life where, you know, I had a really great group of friends, but there were still things that I wanted to do that just weren't things that they were going to do. And I said to myself, you know, if they're not going to do it, I'm going to do it alone. And that's when Will entered my life. And he's like, hey, I want to do all these things too. So it was like a perfect, perfect match um, in so many ways. And we had this really adventurous life. We got to move to the West Coast of Canada and we were outdoorsy climbing mountains and camping and mountain biking and and all this stuff that really brought us so much joy um together as a couple and really strengthened our relationship and yeah we were we were supposed to spend the rest of our lives together and because we thought we had the rest of our lives together um there was never really a hurry uh to 
you know, make the statement of like, you are my forever person in front of our friends and family. Um, and when he died, like that was a really significant loss for me on top of his death um, was that, you know, I didn't get the chance to stand up in front of our friends and family. And I'm like, it's you. Um, so he died in a hiking accident at the end of November, 2019. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, it was, it was sudden, it was traumatic, and it, it, you know, blew up my whole life <laughs> for, uh, for lack of a better term. So how did Will's sudden death impact your assumptive world? And if the second part of that question is what steps did you take to rebuild your assumptive world so it was in alignment with your new reality? Great question, Dave. So in terms of, you know, the beliefs that I had before Will died, like in my world, people died when they were old. You know, they got to grow old and then they died. Um, young people. Yeah, they. I might have heard stories about young people who died, but like it wasn't an option. I was a good person and therefore good things were going to happen to me. And... I, those things were blown to shreds, um, after, after Will died and so much of what I have learned about how the world works or like since his death, the, the way that I've tried to, you know, re rebuild and assumptions about how the world works you know, they're more written in sand now than in stone um, like they were before. Mm -hmm. But I think the mm -hmm. biggest one is like the notion that everybody dies and some people die too soon um, and not in ways that are peaceful. Um, and that is like the truth that I can live with that also adds more value to the way I live, like recognizing that I too one day am going to die. Um, and if I want to stick around, <laughs> then I need to exist in a way that feels the best it can to me, um, which has also, you know, manifested in like a lot of personal work on myself about who am I now that Will is dead and who do I want to be um, in the world? And that's an ongoing, you know, kind of iterative process that I'm constantly like exploring. Um, but it really is like the impetus for how I reflect on my life on a regular basis is like recognizing my own mortality and like, what do I want to do with my life while I'm still here? Yeah, and I think the type of losses that we both experience beg for those existential questions to be asked. Um, and it's how we answer them and how we choose to move forward with them, I think, that determines the quality of our life moving forward. Yeah, and I think, too, like, I think it's important for your listeners to know it's like that didn't happen overnight, right? That was like 
I've probably reached this point like in the last year. Um, the first like year, two years, like it was a constant battle of being like, why isn't the world working the way I thought it did? Because I'll, and I'll tell you right now, like there have been different drafts of the assumptions that I have about the world that I've had to cut and revise to get to this place. Like after Will died, like nearly right after, like I was telling myself, like, you know, Will was an exception. Most people get to live very long lives and die when they are old. And then just this year in March, someone very close to me, 33 years old, died. And I'm like, I once more, my assumption has been shattered. So I'm like, okay, what is the narrative that needs to replace that one? And so now it's like, okay, everybody dies. Many people die young. And, you know, I can live with that kind of story. And now, like, I see evidence of it everywhere in my work. Um, and maybe there will be a future draft of it, but it's, it's a constant, like, drafting and revising um, as we, we experience more light. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, my assumptive world continues to be rebuilt daily. Uh, there are sometimes a transformation is so stark that it just even keeps me in awe. And I think we're going to continue to be works in progress until we ourselves die or transition, however individuals, again, choose to conceptualize that. Um, and I think it's just part of our continuing spiritual growth and involvement and our the constant redefinition of what our meanings of life in life are. And I don't use if something happens to me anymore, I use when something happens to me because there's no if. I'm, okay. I'm, at some point, I'm going to be dancing in another dimension, as I tell my students. Mm -hmm. And I'm not no longer going to be a part of the physical world, but we're only meant to be on Earth for a short period of time. And then we go on to our next adventure, whatever that may be. Mm, yeah, I, I completely relate to that phrasing. Yeah. So on your website, you lay out your grief philosophy. Can you... Uh, Go into more detail for our listeners about what that grief philosophy is and how that aligns with the work that you do. Mm, my grief philosophy. You've done your homework, Dave. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, hey, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an adjunct professor at Utica University. I expect my students to do their homework. And I expect, expect that my guests are going to know that I'm going to do mine so I can be, I, we can have a very informative and also a very, an interview that reflects your interest. Yeah, no, that's great. So I guess for your, for your listeners, like I can review, there's like four points of my philosophy or my perception of, of what grief is. Um, so the first is that, like, I believe that grief is a primary human experience that should not be pathologized, meaning that I don't think that grief is a mental illness. I don't believe in, like, prolonged grief, complicated grief. Like, I think grief is, which leads to my next point of my philosophy, is that I believe that every human experiences grief in their very own unique way. Um, 
and that it is our right as humans to be able to grieve without judgment from others. Um, and I think a lot of us get stuck in grief these days because our bodies inherently know how to grieve. You know, we people have been living and dying for so many years that, you know, our bodies have evolved. Like we know how to experience loss. Um, we know how to metabolize the pain and discomfort that comes when those um, attachments are severed. But I think we are taught culturally that the thing that our bodies are doing, like to not trust it. Um, so I believe that, you know, when we let our, our bodies do what they know how to do, grief becomes far less uncomfortable, painful, the suffering that we all know it as um, if we just let our bodies do what they inherently know how to do. Um, but on top of that, and my last point in my philosophy is that, you know, grief doesn't get fixed. I believe that grief is an energy that is created when attachment to person, place, thing, idea changes. Particularly when it comes to death, you know, there's a physical presence that cannot be put back into place. And therefore, there is always this energy that is just kind of roaming around. This is how I visualize it in my head. And it, you know, it's an energy that sometimes is manifested as sadness, but it can also be manifested as any other feeling on the feeling wheel. Um, so it's not synonymous with depression or anxiety or just sadness. Grief is much more complex and diverse than that. Um, but because it is, you know, taking the place of that attachment that can't be repaired, it can't be fixed. And therefore, it's just something that we live with and that we carry with us and that changes shape depending on, you know, the day, the environment, who we're with. And that's kind of my position on grief. Well, that kind of covers all the all the high points for me, and particularly the I like the fact that you, grief can't be fixed, and it can't. It's an ongoing part of who we are. My experience is that I know that I will grieve to an extent for as long as I live, because the relationships that I have live within me, and relationships don't die because the physical body has died. Where there, there's going to be constant memories or events that are going to elicit. Thoughts of our, our deceased loved ones, our transitioned loved ones. And it's just something that I've learned to accept 20 plus years down the road as being part of the existence that I live. So I've learned to, to just kind of learn from everything that comes my way and not run away from it or try to suppress it as I did in early grief. And as many of us try to do in early grief. Yeah. I think too, like there's a, at least I can speak to my own experience, like early on, like the grief was painful and I can only assume that yours was painful as well, like losing mm -hmm. a daughter. Um, and there was a part of me that didn't want to feel it, but there was also a part of me that wanted like the pain of it because in the early days, like that pain was very dynamic and it moved a lot and shifted a lot much like a person would, right? Like it was kind of unpredictable. 
Um, so there was like a way that like, oh, like this, I can attach myself to this suffering because it, it's what's connecting me to will. And there was a part of me that wanted to maintain that, that suffering piece. And I'm sure there's like other, we can dive into this in a more psychological way if you really want to. But there was like a tipping point when I realized that the connection that I have with Will doesn't always have to be painful. Like there are ways that he can exist. His, his memory can exist in my life that are full of joy and laughter. And that's very much the relationship that we had. You know, those moments do are ha- our, our grief in themselves, but it is not the suffering that was so intense in those early days. Um, and those and joyful, gives, oh, sorry. No, and that's that what gives me hope for the future, right? Like there are those moments and they, they touch, they touch the grief um, and the, the suffering places, but I'm not so attached to like, this has to be suffering. You know, there is, there is a continuation of our relationship without him here. And that makes me very happy. As it does with me and, and my daughter, Janine, and also my other deceased ancestors, I share those relationships. And though there are moments where I yearn for their physical presence, I remember the great times that we had. I remember the qualities that made them who they are. And I can connect with with the essence of those qualities at any time. And that brings me peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's something very comforting about it. Next topic is going to be your book. So tell us about how your book grief ally evolved and how we can help individuals who are, are grieving or going through life altering challenges. Yeah. So grief ally is really a, an, answer to the call of what do I do and how do I help um, when someone in your community dies. So in my experience, you know, when when I was told to go find community and I was in all of these Facebook groups for widows and all of these people were saying, you know, how alone they were feeling in their communities, like I'm a problem solver. I'll admit that. So I, you know, I was like, where, like, whoever is teaching these people how to support, you know, the bereaved, like, they must be teaching them the wrong things. So I did my digging and I realized, like, oh, no one's teaching them anything. You know, all the resources out there for grief are written for the people like me at the epicenter of a tragedy. But for the people who are a little further removed from the center, who have agency and capacity in those moments to learn new things, who are looking for the answers to what do I do? How do I help? How do I not make this worse? They're, the direction that they are given is minimal. They have to mine the internet for just the basics of like bring food, send flowers, go to the funeral, tell a joke, you know, give them a hug. And that's kind of like the extent of it. And I was like, that is not okay, (laughs) because it makes grief work, you know, such an act of self-care, which is I completely, you know, there is a, a component of it that, you know, we do have to do our own work. But 
if we are doing our own work just to like return ourselves to the world that continues to be grief illiterate and death adverse, like we're not doing anyone any favors. Like we're just continuing this very like isolating experience for bereaved people and people are going to keep dying. Like, why aren't we doing this better? Um, so my goal with the book was to create a resource so that when, you know, when the time comes, as you say, that something happens, a bad thing happens, a tragedy happens, somebody dies, um, or even, you know, so no one has to die. Like, it's just a situation where somebody's life is changed. Um, the book is an answer to the question of what do I do? How do I help? beyond just the bring food flowers and go to the funeral. It's a guidebook that sets you up, you know, to feel more confident than helpless through the long haul of supporting someone who is grieving. That sounds like a book that should be just on every grief coach's um, therapist shelf. It sounds like it's a, it's a really, really valuable resource. And I would agree, I think in the early phase, particularly during the time of the funeral, calling hours, things like food, hugs, um, any other type of, of, of gesture that can, can provide support, I think is great. But beyond that, it's like, what are the life skills that we need to now re-engage in a world that looks vastly different? Uh, how do we rebuild our assumptive world? What beliefs do we embrace that we can we can incorporate in addition to our core beliefs. What specific skills do we need um, to reinvent the relationship with our loved ones? And specifically, it's also sitting down with somebody who is grieving and finding out what, in fact, they need. It's yeah. how can we be of the most help? But it's also about being a companion. And I, I, I saw this inherent in your philosophy, being a companion and witness to their story allowing their story to evolve and being willing to walk with them through the worst moments of their lives. That can be powerful in and of itself. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's like, you know, the pattern that I see is that often, you know, people who are bereaved are kind of left alone because people don't want to get too close because they think they're going to, you know, make a mistake. They're going to hurt them like even more, but the, the real threat is like abandoning them when they need connection the most. And grief support isn't rocket science. Like, I think, you know, mm -hmm. people see someone go through something really hard and they're like instantly, it's like, oh, you need a therapist. Like 100% you need a therapist. And like my work as a grief therapist, like the majority of it is validating someone's loss. Like mm -hmm. it makes sense that you feel this way you are not crazy witnessing their pain, like just let being a mirror and recognizing like, I see how hard this is for you. And I see how hard you are trying to live. And the third is like guidance when necessary and with permission, like that in itself is like all a bereaved person really needs. Right. Like, of course, food is helpful. Of course, helping them clean the house is helpful. Shoveling snow, taking out the garbage, watching the kids. Like those are all really great things. But there is a missing like mindset piece, I think, 
you know, a missing kind of framework that I offer in the group for, you know, the long haul. Like it, as you said, you know, it's great to like drop off food in those early days. But if that person is your best friend, like my best friends, they brought the food. And then, you know, two weeks later, I wasn't okay. And they're like, do I bring more food? It's like, that's the narrative we're taught, right? But it's like, actually, no, like what I need you to do is just not disappear. I need you to listen to me. And I need you to love me unconditionally because this is going to change me and I don't know how, but I need you to love me through it to whatever it is that I become after this. Well, particularly with the food angle, it works for a while, but food is a, is a temporary comfort, but it certainly is not, a, is not an antidote to rebuilding your, your assumptive world. And one of the things that you mentioned is re, you mentioned earlier is that rebuilding the assumptive world is a process for you. A lot of times the, the narrative that a lot of individuals, at least in Western society, have had is that, well, after a year, if you're still grieving, there's something wrong with you. It's pathological. But in many cases, the second year is worse than the first year because the reality of the of what you're dealing with hits you the you know, one year and one day into your loss or right into that second year, realizing my loved one isn't coming back. God or the universe isn't going to bring my loved one back and say, we messed up. We're going to give you your life back. It's, this is reality. And then emptiness accompanies the pain, the raw pain of loss. And that's one of the reasons stage theory has been disproven as a, it's the way individuals grieve in a variety of different research research studies. So, um, you know, so it, it isn't a linear process and we need to, I think, continue to educate the public on the fact that, hey, this is ongoing, but it becomes manageable over time, providing that you as the griever are doing the work to move through it. Yeah. And you're doing the work in a supportive environment too. Like, I think they go hand in hand. Like your can call it recovery, healing. I say like you, you know, one day you'll reach another kind of equilibrium where the highs aren't so high and the lows aren't so low. Um, but I think to do that, you know, we have this narrative that like people get stuck. And I firmly believe that people don't get stuck by themselves. They get stuck because people have expected them to do it on their own when grief is a something that requires community care. Exactly. Exactly. So please share one or two takeaways or teachings from your personal experience and or experience with clients, whichever you prefer, that can help our listeners effectively address grief and other life challenges. Yeah. Um, I... I think what what I'll, what I will share is that if you and this this applies to, you know, whether you are the griever or you are in a grief support role. Um, but there are two things that you can give to yourself or you can give to someone else to help in their grief experience. And this is really kind of rooted in the idea that you cannot fix grief. You have to remember that you cannot fix this. So if you are going into, you know, a situation where you are supporting someone, 
or you yourself are looking for the answer of like how to fix your grief, you're not going to find it. Where you do have agency, where you do have control is you can make your life easier and you can make it more comfortable. And, you know, that it can be in a very like tangible way in terms of like comfort, like stop wearing jeans, like wear comfy pants. Like if that makes your life more comfortable, do that. Or, you know, what makes your life more comfortable is talking about the person who you have lost. Do that. If you are a supporter, let that person talk about the person who has passed because it makes them more comfortable in terms of making life easier. Like, sure, the food, the babysitting, the house cleaning, all that falls into the easier piece. But you can also, you know, help someone's life be easier by, you know, take t- just taking the weight of doing life off their shoulders for a moment, for a longer moment, but really focus on comfort and ease, not fixing. I like that. I like that very much. Thank you for sharing those takeaways. I'm sure I know the fact that they're going to be helpful to to our listeners, and I know they'll um, that that'll it'll resonate with many of them. So, last question: How can people get in touch with you? How can they purchase your book? How they can they find out about your services? This is your opportunity to do some self promotion right now. Awesome. So. You can learn more about me and my work on my website, alliebird.com, A-L-Y, bird.com. And there you'll find that I am a speaker. Um, I do keynotes. I am a workshop leader. So I run Grief Ally training workshops. If you have a loss in your workplace, in your friend group, um, I can come in and I can give you the basics of what I teach about grief allyship. Um, you can work with me as a coach um, if you are looking for more specific guidance in a situation where you are offering grief support. I can work with you as a therapist if you are looking for a grief therapist, if you are the bereaved person. Um, and then, you know, on top of all that, you can buy my book and start there. And my book is available anywhere you buy books. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Audible, Apple Books, Google Books, available as an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. You can also get it um, from any local bookstore. They can order it for you. Um, in Canada, it's also available at Indigo and Chapters. Um, and uh, if you want to reach out, chat with me, I would be so happy to hear from you. Um, you can find me on social media at the Alley Bird. Um, or email me at hello at alleybird.com. Well, wonderful. It sounds like there's a variety of different ways that you can connect with individuals. I think that's great. Allie, thank you so much for being a guest on the Teaching Journeys podcast. I enjoyed our conversation immensely, and uh, maybe down the road, uh, we could do it again sometime. I would love that, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And with that, That is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.